You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. That's me, okay? I get up here. Kirk, that was pretty good. You can make a living doing this, you know? (laughs) I am delighted to be here. This is a church with a great testimony for a long time. And these were the two people. Dean and Barbara Hancock said to me years ago, when I wrote on the, I taught the Song of Solomon, they said, you know, you need to write on that. I said, I don't know. Barbara said, there's money in it. I said, I believe I'll do it. <laughs> and I did. And there was. You know, Scott said to me, we're doing a conference, Bible conference on, uh, on and the theme is the family. He said, do you know what you might want to speak on? I said, yes, I do. I know what I speak on in our, in our day. I want to do a message on the theology of a male. I call it testosteronology. (laughs) The doctrine of being a male. Let me give you some introductory comments here, and you just stay with me. Then I'm going to show you from Adam and his counterpart, Jesus. To know what a male is, all I've got to do is look at the... the, uh, the shadow and the substance of Adam and the last Adam, Christ. And that'll tell you what a male is supposed to be. So I'm going to show you about seven things, and you just check off whether you're a man or not, okay? But let me just begin with, with a, just some introductory ideas. I was converted in 1972. I was at the University of North Texas. Played college football there. Did you tell them I was one of the great athletes in the history of college football? Uh, okay. <laughs> Led our team to seven wins in my four years that I was there. <laughs> but uh, my God was, was football and what it brought me. I turned down the Cincinnati Reds when I was in high school to go with, uh, with football. Because it wasn't that I just loved the game, but it gave me something, gave me a sense of worth. And uh, playing at North Texas in the 70s would... Uh, bring you to Christ real quick if you were basing your life upon football. And I got converted in 1972. Heard the gospel over a guy's shoulder. Y'all ever heard of the Christian organization called the Navigators? He came and shared the gospel with my roommate, and I listened over his shoulder and got converted. My roommate was a defensive end, became a bouncer in a Houston topless bar. He didn't do real well. Did better than most of the defense, but... But it hit me, and I got converted. And so I began to read my Bible, and I was amazed when I began to read my Bible. There were things I'd, I'd never read it before, and I didn't realize that it was one story, Genesis to Nehemiah, and it picks back up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus dies, and you've got the book of Acts for 35 years. Then it explains what happens between Romans and the book of Jude, your letters, and then it begins with the tribulation period, and revelation to the second coming in the kingdom. It's a story. I never knew that. Uh, I never really knew that it had one central idea, and that was the glory of God in creation, lost at the fall, restored to Jesus Christ, and realized fully in his second coming when we see him face to face. Amen? There's your whole Bible. Let's close in a word of prayer. And so that's it. That's all the Bible. It's about Jesus. The anticipation of, the manifestation of, proclamation of, explanation of, consummation of Jesus. There's your Bible. And I didn't know that. And uh, one other thing I didn't realize is that it was a book about men. That in the church that I grew up in, it was like a lot of churches in the 20th century. It was a matriarchal church, and it was run by the women. And to me, uh, being a man meant that you were a distance from religion. And so I began to read my Bible. And even though it exalts women, there is no book that exalts women like the Bible. If you wanted to write a biography on Jesus, you easily could call it ladies' man, because he was. Every time, all of his enemies, none of them are women. They're all fascinated, little kids, young women, old women. They, I love that woman in uh, John 4. She goes into the city and says, come meet a man. Isn't that an insult? Come meet a man, finally. I've had five husbands. I'm living with a guy now. I'd like to introduce you to a man. He told me all the things that I've done, i.e., and forgave me. And so it exalts women, but you've got 12 tribes named after men. You've got 12 apostles named after men. 
the histories of Israel and the church are forged by prophets and by apostles that are men. That you have the nation and the church that is fought for and died for by men. You have promises that are made to men. Israel was led and ruled by men. It's a struggle between God, who is called a he, and Satan, who is called a he, with angels and demons who are called he's. And redemption comes from the Son of God and the Son of Man. Are you with me? It's a man's book. And it is a gritty book about life and death. And yet in my lifetime, men have become an endangered species. Men today are like men in the times of uh, Pharaoh and, and Israel and Egypt, that they are going to be cast to the crocs into the Nile. Men are now seen as either stupid and weak or comical. Archie Bunker, is anybody with me? That's a man. Or he's seen as uh, violent, immoral, and evil, kind of your classic anti-hero, your Clint Eastwood. He gets very weak or very violent, very timid or very immoral. Uh, that man is endangered. And yet, you never will see uh, men depicted in the media as spiritual, godly men. And so to be Christian today uh, is to be in a matriarchal and a feminine society. Sadly enough, I had a fellow tell me once, a brother that ministers in the black church, he said a young black man in his church, it's primarily a matriarchal institution. Y'all know what I mean when I say matriarchal. It means it's run by women. And he said, if a, if a young African-American male wants to be a man, you don't go to Christianity. You go to Islam. Are you with me? And that's sad. You go to Islam because it radiates masculinity and violence. If you want to be a man, you go to a cross. Now, that's a man. And yet, that is the culture that we're in. And it wasn't always like this. Whenever America was colonized on the East, whenever the West was conquered, that it was a man's sport. It was men that were on the front line. Is that the ice cream man? <laughs> Go get me a push-up, a sherbet. <laughs> and so, the colonization and the conquest of the East and West of America there were women there, but it was done by men, and it was a man's sport that you did. Uh, and three things happened. The Industrial Revolution took place. Dean, you remember it? I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was a ways back there. In the mid-1800s, all of a sudden, America went from the farm to the city, from the rural uh, to the city. Something changed because men now were separated for the first time from their families, that they went from the fields where they worked with their sons to the factories where they were separated. Or if they lived in the city, they, were, they had a house overneath the business, the grocers, the hardware, the whatever, the blacksmith. Your house was over your, your uh, business, and that changed in suburban society. And so all of a sudden, men from the mid-1800s on got separated from their families. And as a result, someone had to take over the raising of the children, the point man, and especially the religious education of the kids. Now, if it wasn't the man, who was going to do it? Mama. And so America officially went not simply from rural to the city, it went from patriarchal to matriarchal. And that isn't a big Christian concept. They'll teach that in an atheistic university. That's what happens. Whether we wanted it or not, we took men out of the home. The wives now took over the religious duties. And so now spirituality and religion became not the religion of the apostles and Stephen who died and Peter who died and Paul who died. Now it became a women's sport. As a matter of fact, you ever read Tom Sawyer? Tom is always scared that Aunt Polly, who wants him to get in church, is going to womanize him, unquote. 
She's going to womanize me by getting me in church because that's not where men identified. And it's also at this time that a man now no longer becomes the leader of his home because generally when he gets home, he's exhausted. But now what he became was the man that made the living. He was the provider. And his work in, in societal, in the cities, now became meaningless work. If you've ever read Karl Marx's Das Kapital, it's one of the points he recognizes. He had no solution for it. But how in the industrial age, and a man got separated from his labor, no longer was he a craftsman. Now, have y'all ever heard of the assembly line? You could make more stuff by an assembly line by taking a man away from the imagination of what he did, the initiation of it, perseverance in it, and the attainment to say like God in the creation, it's finished, I've done this. That now he screwed on a bolt over a screw that went to the next guy that put in the toggle and the next guy that put in the whatever. And a man became separated from his work. And as a result, you took men out of the home. Question, who raises now the little boys? At a certain age, a boy wants to make contact with the tribe. And it usually occurs about the age of 13. And that's why you have to get a man in that boy's life. In our church, we have men and women teach up through the fifth grade. When they become about sixth graders, we want males, big, stinky, hairy males. All right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny, but you know who cheers about this the most? The women. The women cheer. They say hallelujah to get men out there. When I've given messages like that, they say, do the women have a problem? And they say, no, the women throw rose petals at me. They, they love me. It's, and they jab their husbands and go, wuss, get up and do something. All right. And so the young boys now began a search for manhood. And when there's no man there, guess what else occurred in the mid-1800s? It was called the gangs. If you didn't have men, you found gangs. The five points, the dead rabbits, the natives, you now identified with violence. Or you would identify with wealth, or you would identify with, they had something else that evolved in the mid-1800s, and it became a phenomena. It was called sports, team sports. You began college football, and then college baseball, and then professional baseball. And now the young boy had a new idol, and it was that of the athlete. Kirk, am I right so far? You either idolize the man or a Nashville musician. I just threw that in there. <laughs> and now you know what happened? The real leader of young men was no longer the father. You know who the new priest was? It was a coach. The phenomena of a coach. How many of you males in here got impacted between the time you were 13 and 18, got impacted greatly by a coach? Buddy, bunches of us. I got raised by coaches. I never touched my father. I can remember shaking his hand a couple of times because men weren't supposed to do that. I never really heard any kind of lectures or moral lectures from my father. He was too dang busy. It's also at this time, not only do you have gangs and not only do you have sports, uh, but now you had the birth of saloons because men would self-medicate when they came home. And that's why you had the temperance movement. When you think of the temperance movement, who's leading the charge in the temperance movement? Women carrying an ax, okay? Carry nation about a six foot three woman. I can dig it, okay. And so that's what changed a lot of things. Of women wanted their men back because they lost their men. We've never recovered from this. Y'all know that? You can trust me, I'm a genius. I was a phys ed major, okay. I know this stuff. We never, ever have recovered from that, of the matriarchal shift of Christianity. 
And that's why young men are constantly looking for a man that will lead them. Uh, If you don't have God, you're going to either try to be a man through huge amounts of money, through huge amounts of violence, or through the conquest of women. Men, can I get an amen? That's what he's going to do. And today, with uh, critical race theory, social binary, cultural Marxism, social justice, now you assign guilt, whether you like it or not, you are now the oppressor or the oppressed because we assign you that. If you're a white, heterosexual, male, and you live the gender you have been given birth, a cisgender, you are now officially the oppressor. And so now men take an attack in our day unlike they have ever taken in the history of our country. Are you depressed? Let's close in a word of prayer, okay? Because that's, it is a depressive idea. There is one place that a man can blow aside all of the mist and get to the, the nexus of the truth of who he is. And that is called the Word of God. When you blow aside all the mist and you go back to Eden, you go to Calvary, you go to the New Testament, you go to the, the New Jerusalem, now you see clearly. A fellow named John Paul Sartre, who was an atheist out of France years ago, and he once said, pretty good observation as an atheist, he said, unless there is an eternal reference point, all points are meaningless. Meaning, if you talk about an individual thing, man, woman, right, wrong, sin, family, abortion, marriage, divorce, those are ideas that you can't make a judgment on unless you assume there is an infinite personal God. And if there is not one, all points are now meaningless. Isn't that sad? That was the 60s. Get your motor running way out on the highway. Are you with me, Kurt? Looking for adventure and whatever comes your way, like a true nature's child, we are born you, know, you don't know scripture, but you know Steppenwolf. You know. <laughs> Scott, that's disgraceful. That's all I can say. Am I right? Yeah. Well, Sartre said it best. Unless there is an infinite personal God who has made himself known, that all philosophy, all morality is just useless. And so if we're going to find out what a male, a female, or anything is, we better have a book that begins. In the beginning, God created heavens, earth. Now we're done. The seven most important words in history, that there is an infinite personal God that can tell us what the heck all this stuff is about down here. Are you with me so far? Okay, man, that's worth the price of admission right there. That's worth the $75,000 honorarium that you said that I was going to get here. (laughs) So with this in mind, let me now give you from the Bible what the Bible says a man is. Number one, a man is a born theologian. He is a Yahwistic philosopher. The first thing Adam sees is God face to face. God condescends in baby language into he can look at his reflection. The first thing man sees coming out of the womb is God. And what is called a theophany, theophanero, God making himself visible. I think it is the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. I think personally what Adam saw was Christ, the pre-incarnate appearance of of Jesus. I think he saw God in the flesh. And now in the light of God, does he understand the universe? Yeah, he knows the universe is not God. It's not a bunch of gods. It's not polytheistic. It's a creation of God, and God receives honor. He looks at his body, and he can say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He can look at Eve and say, this one is bone of my bone. God brought her to him like a father, bringing her down the aisle. It's bone of my bone. Uh, He knows we're a child. God blessed them and said, bring forth. He can look at the animal kingdom and know they're not humans. They're distinct, that man is the Lord of nature. He can look out He can look in, he can look at his soul, his mind, his will, his emotion. And those individual points have meaning. Man is a born theologian. 
That's the first thing he has to be. He has to have an understanding of God, who he is. Uh, he has general revelation. He can see in the beginning, or what does Paul say? From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine Godhead have been clearly seen, understood through what has been made so that man is without excuse. You're guilty. You know it. That which is known about God is evident within you. God made it evident to you because you can see it. I don't believe in God. The heck you don't. You know that he is there. And so man had general revelation, and then to explain it, he had specific revelation. What did Adam do in the cool of the day? He walked with God in the cool of the day. Man was a theologian, then man had quiet times. He spent time with God. And he takes to revealed truth. Men take to revealed truth like ducks to water. I have found that the best way to collect men in your church is to go over their heads and to demand of them that these men will study and learn theology. Men are tired of hearing sermonettes for Christianettes, and they want to be taught what God has to say in the Bible. They want to know about theology proper, and then about Christ, then about the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, and about anthropology, man, and then about harmardiology, his sin, then about soteriology, the act of salvation made known through bibliology, the Bible, and uh, the institution of the church, ecclesiology, what brought the evil about, Satanology and angelology, and last times, eschatology. Are you with me? And it fits with Velcro in your Bible. And that's what a man wants to learn, is Scripture. And so a man, first, is at the feet of God. That's why, incidentally, God says, eat of the tree of life. Man was not in intuitively, instinctively, from the beginning, eternal. He had to receive it from the hands of God. First Timothy 6 says, God alone in whom dwells immortality. And so man received it as a gift. Where did man get immortality from? The tree, right? The tree, an act of communion. You accept it in fellowship with me. You receive life from me. Where do you get life from today? The tree. You go to the tree. And then over here, Adam, we've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that means is that you will know good and evil. You will make it in life and be able to be authoritative in life and to navigate life without God. You will know good and you will know evil. We have a term for that today. It's called secular humanism, where you get rid of God and man makes himself God. That was the initial drive of Satan. I will be like the Most High. And the temptation to Adam and Eve, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil, and you won't need him anymore. God's word can't be trusted. His justice is false. And God is not ultimately good. He wants to have you beneath him. You need, like a true nature's child, you're born to be wild. Satan really hadn't changed his argument. If you really want to find life, anybody here go to a four-year state college? What were we taught? Was at our college, were we taught to fear the living God, obey his word, and know life? No. We were taught, if you really want to find life, you need to get rid of God. And you need to fly, little bird. And that's what Satan said to Adam and Eve. You want to know life? Get rid of this baggage of Yahweh and fly. God said... In the day you do it, in the day you cut the tether to the mothership, in the day you do it, you will surely die. You're a dead man. What's the most important part of an astronaut's uniform? The tether to the mothership. You cut that tether, and life sucks. All right? into space. You disappear into the vacuum of space. Are you with a young girl? I wish I was you and you were me and when I was you, I forget. You got something I never had. Me. Okay. 
Are you with me so far? A man apart from God decomposes. He flies apart. Men without God die. He is the tether to the mothership. And so, Adam, open your eyes. Here I am. Now, let's start here with you looking up at me. Okay. Number two, man is a creator. He's a mimic of God. God plans. God creates. He initiates a work. He progresses. He perseveres until on the sixth day, his work was finished. And then we're going to take a day to sit back and go, whoa. And that's what the Sabbath is. It's to rest and glory in God. And so that's God. He's a creator. He plans, initiates, perseveres, finishes. Adam, I'm not just going to have you just be on welfare out here. I'm not just going to give you this stuff. I want you to subdue the creation. I want you to gain dominion. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to multiply. I want you to eat of the tree of life and rule and put it beneath your feet. You're to be the vice regent, the vicar of God, the vicar ray in the place of the king. You are to be the vice regent of God. That's why if you go to a college up north that brings you back to the Bible. It's called Regents, and it's to get you back in contact with what man is supposed to be, a creature at the feet of God. And so, Adam, I want you to do what I did. And that is why a man has got to be able to cultivate land. He's got to be able to build a business from scratch, to take a team from scratch, a house from a foundation up, a family from scratch, a nation from scratch. Uh, to be an athlete that starts planning and training and working to get that medal. Man is made to do something. And that's why when men can't, when men find themselves unable to make something of their life, that men get kind of crazy. They get kind of restless. Uh, men start off aiming for success in building something. And once they hit about age, how old are you, Scott? 49. About 49. <laughs> they crest the top of the hill. <laughs> you get what's called furniture's disease, where your chest falls into your drawers. Have any of y'all got that yet? And men start off aiming for success, and then they hit about 50, and they look around and go, that's pretty much what a dentist is going to make. That's pretty much what an obstetrician is going to make. This is what a pilot's going to make. This is what a city worker is going to make. This is it. I got one bed. I got one refrigerator. I got one car. That's it. I can't do anymore. Steve Jobs had two heliports on his yacht. How many heliports, Kurt, do you need on your yacht? One, one will do, yeah. But Jobs had two of them. You need two heliports, see. You just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Historically, the richest guy of all history was worth in the six figures trillions of dollars. You know who it was? Solomon. Solomon. And his most famous book was Vanity vanity. All is vanity. What advantage hath a man in all his work? The word advantage in Hebrew means profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. What profit? Kirk, when you're all done, how much of your life do you leave behind? All of it. It's done. What profit? I've lost it all. I've become a, a garage sale. Amen. God, a lot of times, will just answer me when I say stuff like that. Just, that's, that's his ring. He'll say, boy, great job, John. I like this. 
And so a man is meant to make something. Incidentally, the problem with all the aforementioned things, you die and leave them behind. What's the ultimate thing you can take with you? The gospel. Can you take it with you? Yes, you can. A guy said to Jesus when he died, remember me when you come. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me. You can take it with you. Did you get that? Write that down. You can take it with you. It's called the Great Commission, where you win people to faith, you disciple them, you train them, and you take them with you to live as Christ, to die, gain. And so, a man is meant to be a creator, to make something out of his life. Number three, a man is immortal. He is to receive from the hand of God immortality, eternal life. Heaven and hell are ultimately two reunions. At the end of the Bible, you've got hell, Revelation 21, you've got Revelation 20, and you've got heaven, Revelation 21 and 22. You've got the lake of fire, you've got the holy city. Both are eternal. And so all creation ends up as two family reunions. God and his people are Satan and his angels. So God wants us to invest in eternity. The book of Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in their hearts. We long not just for a splash. A man wants ripples. He doesn't want just success. He wants significance. And that's why they say, Scott, that men about the age of 50, when things start breaking down on them, they start looking at themselves and knowing I've had it all. It doesn't scratch my itch. I'm going to leave it. And then they start looking for significance. What can I do to try to make this count? Well, Adam was given the tree of life. And in the Great Commission, we baptize men in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We teach them to obey all that he commanded us. And I'm with you till the end of this period of grace. And then we go into eternity. You know, with me, I didn't know, I didn't really realize when I trusted Christ that I'd go to heaven. I found out that later. I didn't want Christ so much for life after death. I wanted him for life before death. I wanted something to die for, and I couldn't find anything. I think that's why men will get attracted to communism, because if they feel this is the solution to the world's evils, they can become Castro's or Che Guevara's, but it doesn't work. We're looking for something to die for that is worth my life. When I looked at the gospel, that I could be saved through Jesus Christ and that I could carry the word of God into others' lives, I had a guy come up to me that played tackle at North Texas. I became a Christian. He watched my life. He came up to me. His name was John Bowles. I named my uh, second boy after him. And he said, what happened to you? Offensive linemen are very direct. Okay. What happened to you? I said, what do you mean? You're not what you were. You're, and he said, you're light. You're light. Happy? Yeah, happy. Two syllables. And you're happy. (laughs) He said, what happened to you? I said, you want to know? Yeah. I said, you really, really, really want to know? I do. You heard of Jesus? Yeah. I was church of Christ. I said, well, he did come. He is the son of God. He did die. He rose from the dead and he can impart eternal life to you, and he can give your life meaning right now, and having eternal significance. And this eternal time, and looked at me, and he goes, the hell you say? <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, <laughs> an offensive line. I said, that's right. And I went home that summer, came back for two-a-day workouts, and he met me in the uh, athletic dorm lobby, and he just looked at me, and he smiled. He had never smiled, ever in his life. You ever seen the Grinch that stole Christmas? Whenever he smiled, his face just kind of cracked. That's what he did. He just smiled at me. And I said, you did it. He said, I did. And I said, what happened? He said, I had a date with this girl, and she had the same story. I said, I hope you didn't say to her, hey, you're light. He said, no, her name was Jan Abbott. And I said to her, you know, you're kind of like a friend of mine. She said, you know who Jesus is? And he heard it again, and he trusted Christ. He's one of the leading coaches on the East Coast. I named my son John Nelson after John Bowles. 
I called him every night when I can, and we pray together. I buried his wife, married him off, buried his wife a few years ago. Uh, but, and after I saw him come to Christ, Kirk, I said, I watched his life changed, and I said, man, this is fantastic. I was going to play at North Texas. We had a guy come to us named Hayden Fry. Y'all have heard of that? He came out of SMU, take over North Texas. First thing he did, that was a fifth-year senior, quarterback. He didn't know I was one of the great athletes in the history of the 20th century. And he said, Tommy, he called me in after a workout. He said, uh, you're a fifth-year senior. Yes, sir. Why'd you decide to play your fifth year? I said, frankly, I want to play for a guy like you. He said, well, we're highly flattered. However, that's always a scary word for the coach. However, we're going to lose this year. And I can't lose with a fifth-year senior. I'm going to have to lose with a sophomore. And so... Here's an apple and a roadmap. There's Waco. <laughs> Bye. I got cut. So I went out and did my student teaching to finish up my, my degree. And uh, this trainer comes to me and he said, I gave him a, an Athletes in Action magazine. He said, you a Christian? Yes. Coach came later. Could, could you speak to my football team? I said, I guess so. I shared my testimony. 16 kids there. I said, well, I'm done. Uh, None of y'all want to be Christians, I guess. Eight of them raised their hand. We trusted Christ together. And then a kid comes up and says, hey, could you do this to the whole school? I'd, I'd spoken once in my life. I was Barney Fife, one bullet. <laughs> could you speak again? And I prayed. I said, let me pray about it. Maybe God didn't want me to tell people about Jesus. Okay. And I prayed and said, okay, Lord, you'll regret it, but I'll do it. <laughs> and I got up and spoke. My voice cracked. I was going to say, it's good to be here. I said, it's good to be here. <laughs> 1,500 kids, and I shared the gospel. Kirk, the place went dead silent, because I didn't know any better than just to run to the cross. And I just started talking about the death of Christ, and they went dead silent. On the most fascinating idea in the history of the world, that God became a man and died on a cross that we could be saved. And I said, wow, this was something. Then I found out you could get paid for it. And here I am today. <laughs> and so man is a theologian. Man wants to make something, but man can't scratch deep enough if it's not eternal. Man is made for God. Mankind is, but especially a male of the species. He reflects, Adam is called in Luke 3, Adam, the son of God. You guys are made for God. You get away from him and you are the bastard element of the universe. All of the creation will submit to what he has made them to be. Animals are hardwired. They do what they're meant to do. Humans can make choices. Uh, broad paths, narrow paths, death, life, foundation under, no foundation, gone, stays. Men can do that. And so you're made for God. Without God, you are cut from the tether. You don't know who you are. And you're going to make a substitute for significance, and you're going to get strange and weird. And when you hit 50, you're going to take off on your wife and go chase the head of the drill team. If you don't watch, write that down. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> Number four. How much time do I have? I'm. What time? Okay. Okay. Number four. A man is meant to be a family man. Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. God is Trinity. He's not just infinite. He's personal. Adam, you're made for eternity. The problem is there's just you. I need to make something of you that's different from you so you can learn to do. You ever read the book of Hosea? How the prophet is to love someone like God loves the children of Israel. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ. God in the Old Testament to Israel, 
Christ in the New Testament to his church. God nourishes. The word nourish is the word intrepho in Greek. We get the word trough, that God feeds his children, cares for his children. The word cherish in thalmo is a mama bird protecting its young. God is a natural born husband. He's infinite and personal. And he loves. And so a man is made to give his life to protect and care for this person. Fallen men can't pick up on this. They want to take. I know because I've been a fallen man for years. And they will be acquisitive in sex. They will take and consume because they're off base on what a man is really meant to be. The, the ultimate picture of man, maleness, is the cross. To where you give your life for this lady. You lay it down for her. That is what a man is called to. You know what a man is called whenever he is a, wants to get married, but he's not rightly related to God. We have a term for it. If a woman is not rightly related to God, she's called a man-eater, that she will consume a man. A man is called a rogue male. In other words, the man wants the woman to submit to him. But then you say to the man, who do you submit to? In other words, if a guy comes to me to say, I want to marry your daughter, I ask him this, give me your testimony. Tell me when you bowed and fell face down before the Almighty. I mean, you want to love my child? Who controls you? Why should I trust you with my daughter? Now, who controls you? Whose word, young man, do you bend to? Now, you tell me. Then you ask him this, guys. What do you think about the book of Habakkuk? If he coughs, send him home. I always say to young men, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and you're running Habakkuk? He says, hey, how'd you like my book? Where's John? Okay. And so man is meant to be. He is a born husband. Incidentally, many, you guys want to feel bad? How long have you been married, Kirk? It's time to suffer. Okay. A man has to be a provider. Women don't like couch potatoes. A woman doesn't have to work. She can or she can't. Depends on them. The man has to. That's why these women outlive us. We work. We get worn out. We die. They take our insurance. Marry younger men. Go to Cabo. <laughs> That's what it is. All right. They do us like an Apache does his horse. All right. Lather him up, put him down, get another one, all right? That's why if I go speak in an old folks home, I've got 14 little sharp women and one guy that's not real sure why he's there. <laughs> a man has to work. Number two, a man has to be tender and sensitive to his wife as to a weaker vessel. Sensitive, like porcelain. Number three, he's got to be a listener. He's got to cherish her. Your opinion means something. Talk. Number four, he's got to be a leader, a spiritual leader. No woman is praying, oh, God, give me a weak man. God, give me a, a wuss, please. A real wiener, God. Are you praying that, dear? Of course not. You're praying God. The, the idea that a, that a woman wants a weak man is a myth. Gloria Steinem once said, we women have finally become the men we all wanted to marry. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> they want leaders. They want a model for their kids where they can point to their kid and say, there, follow him. A woman told me one time, my greatest longing is to separate my kid from their father, to make sure he does not end up like this man. 
My greatest enemy is over the other end of the cereal bowl. That's horror for a woman. A woman wants security. I don't want this guy looking at porn. I don't want him messing with other women. I want to lay my head down knowing this guy has gone to the end. She wants NST, non-sexual touching. She doesn't want a hand in the dark. Thank you. (laughs) She wants just affection for the purpose of affection. I had a woman tell me one time, my husband, I touch him, and he's like Thumper the Rabbit. You know? (laughs) Who has no idea what I just said? (laughs) Go watch it. Bambi, just go watch it, all right? (laughs) A woman wants a king. What does every crown want? A head. Want a head. A, A woman wants to be the crown of a man she's not embarrassed at. A man, a woman wants a man's soul. I want you to talk to me. I want to know how your day, I want to get inside of you. James Dobson says you generally speak 2,000 words a day. A man comes home from work, he's done shot about 1,750. The woman's been talking to three-year-olds. She's ready to talk. Now you got to talk. A, man, a woman wants freedom to still be who I am. Anytime a guy has to cram down and conform his wife to what he wants her to be, he has not trusted her. That's an insult to her. A woman has to have the freedom to be who she is. You ever read Proverbs 31? That woman's got three jobs out there. She considers she's buying real estate and stuff. A woman wants support. I need, when I beat the kids, I need you to stand with me. I'd come home, my wife would say, we had two boys. One works for the Secret Service, the other is a Fort Worth cop. I mean, they're not genteel boys. My wife would come home and she'd go, beat the child. (laughs) Beat him long and beat him hard. (laughs) Beat him to the glory of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. (laughs) A woman wants help. Who was that woman? She was a counselor. She said to me, the sound of my husband vacuuming is foreplay. (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Kirk, you need to know that. And a woman wants development. She doesn't want to be thinking, what could I have been? If I hadn't met this guy, a guy has to locate her talent. What do you love to do, babe? I am going to be to you like Christ is to us. What I'm going to develop you instead of, remember the song by Glenn Campbell? These are the dreams of the everyday housewife who gave up the good life for me. Ain't that a drag? No, you, and I'm poured out to make, to say, what do you love, darling? What do you love? Okay, let's move on. That's dangerous. A man, fifthly, is a born father. God shares that title with him. Father. I'm the father of the son. You can be a father. He lets him bring forth life. As a matter of fact, the word for the gospel is called God's seed in 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Man has seed and it brings forth. James said he brought us forth by the word of truth. We have the ability to conceive life. As a matter of fact, in an abortion clinic, I'm sorry, in a crisis pregnancy center that's trying to give a girl an option, give a guy an option, if the one thing you can buy that will almost entirely remove the abortion process, you know what it is? It's one machine. Guess what it is? Sonogram. Let's let them see. That's, that's a heartbeat, yeah. He looks like my cousin. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna look like you too and a whole bunch of you. He's a combination of the both of you. Where's that come from? Yeah. David said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made in the depths of the earth. And so we have children 
I'll tell you what I've learned with my sons, that there is a no amount of pain that can take away the joy of a good kid. No amount of pain you go through will take away the pain of having decent kids. And there is no amount of happiness that can take away the pain of a wayward kid. We've all learned that, haven't we? It can be painful. That's why the prodigal goes home and the father saw him from a long way off. How come? He's looking. He's a sorry boy. He's an immoral boy. He's a spendthrift boy, but he's my boy. And he's looking for him to come home. The father was rich, but I want that boy home. You know what Rebecca said to uh, Isaac? If Jacob marries one of the daughters of the land, the Canaanites like Esau, what good will my life be? Wow. A good son is a father's glory. A bad son is a mother's grief. And so, you think they ought to have courses on this in college? But we fly solo. We go get married, start making kids, and we ain't got a clue as to what's going on. That's why in our church now, Scott, I don't know if y'all have to do this. We take men, young guys come into our church and they get going and we find out we got to reparent them. We got to take them back to 12 years old and start with them on the stuff your daddy never told you on how to be a husband, a father. College showed them how, you know, how to be a, get a master's in business administration, but they don't know how to make it in life. In him was life. His life was the light of men. Number six, a man is a born leader. God didn't make Adam and Eve at the same time and have a jump ball. He made Adam, gave him the decrees, then he took Eve, not from the dirt, but from his side. This one is bone of my bone. In other words, Eve was the body of Adam. Does that sound familiar? Do y'all know of another man who went to sleep and his side was opened, and a wife came forth. What happened to Christ on the cross? He died, his side was rent, and from it came the body of Christ, came his bride, just like Adam. And so, uh, God makes Adam first. You are the leader. First Timothy chapter 2, it was not Eve, who was first created, but Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Man is made for the glory of God. Woman for the glory of man. She is his sidekick next to him by which he leads to the glory of God. A man is a born leader. The people that love this idea the most are women. They're the ones that say to me, preach it, Tom. Tom, you're a genius. Tom, you're fantastic. I don't know if they say that, but they should. Okay. <laughs> but the problem is you get men that don't know God, and now they're Darth Vader. They're rogue leaders. Remember Anakim Skywalker? Darth, he went dark on us. And that's what happens to a man that doesn't know God. He'll become crazy. He'll become immoral, violent, something to try to dominate without God. Remember Jesus said, those that are lords of the Gentiles call themselves benefactors and lord it over them. It's not so among you. The greatest among you is going to be the least and a servant. He said to the Pharisees, you love the best places at the synagogues, the best places at the banqueting. That's not a leader. If you're going to be a leader, you do like God with Adam. You bend down and you give your life. And he became a living soul. Christ went to the 12 and he breathed on them, John 21. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, here comes the Spirit rushing like a mighty wind, a breath, a ruach. God breathing into his child. As a matter of fact, that's why you change the name Abram to Abraham. It's called a Ruach. It's life. You're Sarai. 
You're going to be the mother of nations. I'm going to call you Sarah. And there's life. And so God breathes life into us. And that's what, a, and that's what Christ does, giving his life. That's what God does, giving his life. And so a man gives his life. And that is what a leader is. Greatest definition of a leader. You know what it is? Webster's Dictionary. Leader. One who leads. <laughs> what that means is you're not a leader because you got a title or a seminary degree. You're a leader because you're out front. So guys, you let your wife wake up and see you in your Bible. And you take her hand at night and say, let's pray and you pray with your children. Greatest thing you can do with a kid is to bless that child in the face of God. I would sit with my boys and say, Father, I pray for Benjamin. I pray for him, God, that he would know you from an early age, that he would walk with you. I pray that he would have the guts and the tenacity to walk alone when his idiot friends, Nathan and Ryan down here, I pray, God, that he would walk close to you. I pray right now, God, you'd be preparing that woman, whoever she is, get her ready. And John Clark, he played ball for the St. Louis Cardinals. Got a World Series ring, cost more than his house. And I prayed for him. I pray for John, God, whatever you want him to be, it's fine with me. Third baseman, center field, anything, but make him yours. And so I would pray with my boys. I would have devotions. Guys, let me put your heart to rest. To do a devotion, here's what you do. At dinner time or sometime before they all go off, you take a Bible verse and you read a verse and you say, that's what this means. And you ask a question. Theotis, what do you think in the lunchroom that means to you? Sophie, to you at soccer practice, what does that mean? I don't know. Good answer. Let's just pray. Father, help us to know how to walk with you alone. Amen. That took you about 90 seconds. You don't need to rewrite Romans to do a, a devotional with your kid. You just devote a time, and you do it often during the week. Just, Daddy, pray for them, and Mama, cheer him on, and your kids will tell of those times over council fires, all right, out on the prairie, on a buffalo hunt. I just made that up, okay? <laughs> but they will. They will tell their children and their grandchildren, let me tell you what your daddy used to do. Take 90 seconds. That's all. And don't be offended at their demeanors. <laughs> That's all right. We did it too. How much time? Oh, it's too long a story. Okay. Uh, so, we are to be leaders. You read your Bible, you pray, and you be the guy that your wife can say, Theotis, Sylvester, Cletus. That is a man. All right? You do that. The greatest thing you can do as a dad, love your kid's mama. Love your kid's mama. Amen? Amen. What's this proverb mean? Better is a plate of vegetables and a house of peace than a fattened ox and a house of strife. The primary thing that Christian parents have to do and a father has to engineer is you have to make your house a place of peace. We talk to each other, mom and dad, with respect, with kindness, we touch with affection. When you, I don't want to embarrass you, but how many of you came from homes that you grew up in the presence of continual parental strife? Any of you? How did you feel? You know what you felt like? I got to get out of here. If you were a boy, you thought, I got to get my license and I got to get out of here. And you know what you said as a girl? I got to find me a boy with a license. <laughs> Amen, ladies. 
I got to get out of here. You started praying like, who's Forrest Gump's girlfriend? Jenny, God make me a bird and let me fly away. Sometimes, Jenny, there's just not enough rocks. And so that's my primary deal, is to love my wife in the presence of my children so that they will always have a hearth to come back to. Are there times you've got to apologize to your kids? Yes, I've had to do it. Boys, I uh, didn't talk to your mother as I should have. John Clark, you forgive me? Sure, that's all right. Ben, you forgive me? Nope. <laughs> I am doing drugs. <laughs> that's what he would do. And last of all, a man like Adam. Could Adam tell people the mind of God? Yes, God had talked to him. Adam was a prophet. Could Adam sacrifice? And could there now be, especially after the fall of man, was there a place of sacrifice? Yes, there was. Adam was a priest. And Adam was to rule instead of God. Adam was a king. Prophet, priest, and king. If you don't have a prophet, you're going to have to come up with humanistic philosophy to tell you what's true. If you don't have a priest that can introduce men to God and tell men who God is, then you're going to have to come up with uh, your own religion to invent a way to come to God. And if you don't have the rule of the king, now you're going to have to elect somebody that's going to come up with his own political theory. Philosophy, religion, politics. What are the three most screwed up areas in the history of the world? Philosophy, religion, and politicians, because Adam dropped the ball. Is there another man in the Bible that is called the Word of God, who is called our great high priest, and is called the King of Glory? Who's that man? He's 33, born in Nazareth, got scars. Sounds like Jesus, starts with a J. There is your ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And that is what a man is meant to be. A man is meant to handle his Bible. A man is meant to offer the sacrifices to God of good works, of souls, of praise, and of good works. And a man is meant to be ruled by and to submit himself to the reign of God and bring all things under his feet. That's a man. Y'all ever have to read in high school Nathaniel Hawthorne's Great Stone Face? The little boy who's looking at the profile on the mountain, the mountain face makes a great stone face. And it was said in the village that someday someone would come that was going to be the greatest of men who would be the great stone face. And the little boy's always waiting to see who that man is. Here came a military man. Is it him? Ah, oh, but he got to know him personally. Nope, it ain't him. Here came a politician. Is it him? Nope. Wasn't him. Here came a wealthy man. Was it him? Nope. Here came a musician. Was it him? Nope. Once he got past all the pizzazz underneath them, they were made of clay. And the little boy just kept looking all of his life at the great stone face. And by the end of the short story, guess who the great stone face was? The little boy. Because he gazed at that face. And that's what we're to do. We behold as in a mirror the glory of God. Christ is the mirror, the image, the reflection of God, and are being transformed into the same image by the Holy Spirit. And so that is what men were to do. When you open your Bible, it's a man's book, and you're to look at the greatness of Yahweh and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then of all the little Daniels and the Davids and the Ezras and all these guys, the lesser lights, and you look at them like the sun and the stars, and you keep looking at them until you get shaped into them. That's a man. Are you discouraged? I am. The best way to teach this is to leave your wife at home and come tell everybody else how they ought to do. Because I look at this and I go, man, I got a ways to go. Huh. But the key is, is that we're in process. Father in heaven, thank you for this time with my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I've just taken a look at what Adam was meant to do and man dropped the ball, so the last Adam had to come and get it done. 
The first Adam said no to a tree. The last Adam said, not my will, but thine be done. He submitted himself to the tree to the point of death. And as a result, he can now reach down and bring many sons back to glory of what we should be. Thank you for him that became our word from God. Thank you for him that became our sacrifice. Thank you for him that is our king. And thus on the great trident of ideas, of what is true, of how I might approach God and be righteous, of how I might know right and wrong and be ruled, I have my prophet, I have my priest, and I have my king. Like the Christian singer sing, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Take all the world beside, but give me Jesus. And when I'm afraid, when I'm alone, give me Jesus. And when I die, give me Jesus. I can want no more than the Word become flesh. Amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.